At New City Church, we've been doing a sermon series, walking through the book of Ephesians. And we're drawing to an end of the sermon series. We're going to be looking at Ephesians, a part of Ephesians chapter 6 today. We'll go back to one or two more sermons on chapter 5 in the next few weeks, but I'm going to be looking at a portion of chapter 6 this morning. The passage of scripture we're looking at is Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 10 to 20. Uh, Allow me to read uh, this passage for us. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. This is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. Allow me to pray. Father, even though this is a video recorded sermon, it is still your word. And your spirit is still present here and so is your community. Where your word is preached in the presence of your community and your spirit, we believe by faith. Your power to transform people and make every one of us more Christ-like is ever-present. We thank you, Lord. And come at this time into your hands. Change us. Stir our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, I'd like to draw three things for us from this passage. First, the seeming irrelevance and surprising relevance of spiritual warfare. That's what this passage is all about, spiritual warfare. Second, if Christ is one, why is there spiritual warfare? And third, how are we to engage in spiritual warfare? So three things, the seeming irrelevance and surprising relevance of spiritual warfare. If Christ is indeed one, why is there any spiritual warfare? And third, how are we to engage in spiritual warfare? Let's start with the first, the seeming irrelevance and the surprising relevance of spiritual warfare. Um, You know, at some level, all of us experience at least some disbelief when it comes to spiritual warfare. Uh, are these stuff about demons for real? You know, they, I know they show up in horror movies, but, but are they for real? 
and uh, we all experience some cynicism and some pushback when it comes to spiritual warfare or at the very least we are indifferent to it we don't live as if spiritual warfare is a reality all this is superstitious talk superstitious talk there, there is no scientific evidence for uh, demons and the devil look at the world around us we are no longer a primitive civilization uh, we are growing in technological advancement you know at some level this is kind of how we all feel or if this is your very first time in a church church kind of a setting you're probably thinking who on earth believes in demons and spiritual warfare anymore all this talk uh, is for superstitious and uneducated people and so spiritual warfare might seem like an irrelevant topic topic we feel this way because we tend to limit our definition of spiritual warfare to only demons etc and this is an incomplete understanding of spiritual warfare the book of ephesians actually helps us define spiritual warfare more accurately you can read that in ephesians chapter 2 verses 2 and 3 allow me to read that for us and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind and this passage tells us that there are three aspects to spiritual warfare first is the world the values the systems of the world then the prince of the power of the air that's the devil and his demons and the third is the sinful inclinations of our own flesh the devil and demons are, are, are real they, they may not show up uh, in our lives in the way they show up in in horror movies but only the naive will not acknowledge the reality evil in the world that we live in so we've got to consider all three aspects to really understand spiritual warfare the devil the values of this world that are in sharp conflict with the values of the gospel and third our own sinful inclinations so all three are the cause of spiritual warfare and so when we see spiritual warfare through this prism that the book of ephesians frames for us then spiritual warfare becomes surprisingly real and relevant for example every single day you show up at work you are engaging in at least some level of spiritual warfare because almost every job and every career is trying to force you to align with certain value systems that the world believes in 
One of them is it's a completely performance-driven culture where your value, worth, significance, your very identity is absolutely and totally dependent on the work that you do every day. But that's not how God values us. Our value, our worth, our significance, our identity is defined not by what we do or do not do, but by what Christ has done on our behalf. His death and his resurrection as our substitute is what defines us, not the work we do, as good and beautiful as it is. So this is spiritual warfare. Anything that draws us away from Christ is spiritual warfare. So if we can agree with this definition, then we are all in a constant state of spiritual warfare. And so that's the first thing that I wanted to draw out for us from this passage. The seeming irrelevance and the surprising relevance of spiritual warfare. This brings us to the second aspect. If Christ is one, why is there spiritual warfare? You know, I, I pondered on this a lot during my early days as a follower of Christ. And I still wonder about it sometimes. God is all-powerful. And, and, and Jesus really finished everything by his death and resurrection. He defeated sin. He defeated death itself. He defeated Satan. He overcame the world. So if Christ is, is indeed victorious over everything, why is there still spiritual warfare? There are two answers to the question. First, we are living in an already but not yet season. In his death on the cross and in his resurrection, Jesus defeated every force of evil. But we await his second coming for the consummation of his victory on the cross. So it's only when Christ comes again that everything is going to be made beautiful and perfect and sinless all over again. And when Christ comes again, there will be no more evil in this world. And so that's why we call this, where the season we are living in, as the already but not yet season in God's kingdom. Christ has accomplished the victory, but the full victory is going to be consummated when Christ comes again. But why is there this already but not yet season? Why is there a gap between the victory of Christ on the cross and the consummation of this victory in, in, in the second coming? Why is there a gap? You know, I don't think we can answer that question fully on this side of eternity. Uh, I think one day we, we will see all of God's beautiful plans. But for now, I think we can safely assume two things, two reasons why there is a gap between Christ's victory on the cross and the, and the consummation of this victory in the second coming. Why is there a gap in which we have to face spiritual warfare? Two reasons. God allows spiritual warfare in this already but not yet season so that his name may be glorified and our hearts may be sanctified. God allows spiritual warfare so that his name 
may be glorified and our hearts may be sanctified. The lives of two uh, individuals, which is told for us in the Bible, helps us understand this better. The first is Job from the Old Testament, and second is Peter, the disciple of Christ from the New Testament. Let's start with the story of Job. Satan approaches God, if you remember the book of Job, and asks God for permission to test Job. Satan tells God that, you know, Job is loving you and is faithful to you, is worshipping you only because you've been blessing him. Take away that, take away your protection, and let's see if he still worships you. And so God gives permission to, to Satan to test Job. And Satan attacks Job, spiritual warfare. Job loses all his wealth, he loses his family, uh, he is bordering on death, stuck by all kinds of sores. Even his own wife goads him to curse God and die. But Job, as we know from the story, Job never curses God. And in the end of it all, we see that God is glorified through the spiritual warfare and suffering of Job. And so it is with us. The spiritual warfare we are called to face in this already but not yet season of God's timeline is for God's glory. God is glorified when by his strength, by his grace, we emerge faithful through every spiritual warfare he allows us to face. So the book of Job is a great illustration of, of spiritual warfare. In all that Job endured, God was glorified. In all that Job endured, God was glorified. The second person that, who helps us understand the why of spiritual warfare is Peter, the disciple of Christ Jesus. Just before Jesus was crucified, Peter, a disciple of Christ, had to endure a torrid time of spiritual warfare. Now, Jesus was aware Peter would have to face this. Jesus says in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 32, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's what Jesus told Peter. And there is a remarkable similarity between what happened to Job and what happened to Peter. Satan had to ask permission from God to, to sift, to test Job. And, and, and same here, here Satan is demanding permission to, to sift Peter. But unlike Job, who held his ground and emerged faithful and brought glory to God, Peter failed. We all know that Peter denounced Christ three times. And yet, after his resurrection, Christ restores Peter. And then we go on to see the amazing influence that the restored Peter had on the early church after he was reinstated by Christ in grace. Look at Jesus' words to Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter failed, but he was reinstated by God's grace. And when he was reinstated, he was also sanctified and truly strengthened. And he went on to truly strengthen his brothers. Peter was sanctified by this experience of spiritual warfare. And he ended up serving the church after that in an incredible manner. Spiritual warfare, one of the reasons, one of the purposes God allows spiritual warfare is our sanctification. So those are the two reasons why God allows spiritual warfare, even though Christ has already won the victory. This warfare is against a defeated enemy. God allows spiritual warfare for his name to be glorified and for our hearts to be sanctified. This brings us to the third and the last thing I'd like to draw out for us from this passage. How are we to engage in spiritual warfare? And the passage we're looking at this morning gives us three ways in which we are called by God to engage in spiritual warfare. First is verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord. That's the first way we are to engage in spiritual warfare. Second, in verse 11, it says, put on the whole armor of God. That's the second way we're called to engage in spiritual warfare. Third, in verse 18, we're called to pray at all times in the spirit. That's the third way we are called to engage in spiritual warfare. So first, be strong in the Lord. Second, put on the armor of God. And third, pray in the spirit at all times. I want to quickly unpack all three. First, be strong in the Lord. What does that mean? Uh, Paul gives us the answer to this, I think, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, where he encourages Timothy. Paul says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. To be strong in the Lord, Paul says, is to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, what does it really mean to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus? Very simply put, to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus means to have an, a lifestyle of actively repenting for our sins and believing in Jesus Christ. Not just for the forgiveness of our sins, but also for the transformation of our hearts and our behavior inside out. Grace is the greatest strength in our sinfulness. Because the grace of God that is available to us through the death and the resurrection of Christ gives us the assurance that when we come to him in genuine repentance, when we come to him weak, when we come to him with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, God will never despise us no matter what our sin. He will forgive us in Christ Jesus. He forgives us because Christ has already been punished in our place on the cross. 
the grace of God, the grace of Christ Jesus is the only way we can overcome the weakness of our sinfulness. To, to be strong is to be weak. When I say weak, I mean not to be proud, not to be adamant, not to be hard-hearted, but to immediately come to God in repentance for our sins. So it is grace to be strong in the Lord is to be strong in the grace of Christ Jesus. Remember the triad that causes spiritual warfare that, that we talked about, the devil, the values of the world, and our own flesh? Among these three, it is our own flesh that opens up the doorway for spiritual warfare. And the best way to guard this doorway, the doorway of our own flesh, of our own heart, is to go to Christ Jesus in, in, an, in an ongoing lifestyle of genuine repentance and faith in him. Our greatest strength in spiritual warfare is to acknowledge that we are weak. And only in acknowledging that we are weak and sinful and we need a savior, that we cannot save ourselves, it is only in this acknowledgement that grace, that the grace of Jesus flows into our lives. So repentance for our sins and faith in Jesus Christ is the most basic discipline of spiritual warfare. So to be strong in the Lord is to be strong in the way we appropriate grace by a lifestyle of active and ongoing repentance and faith. Let me illustrate this vividly. You know, at New City Church over the last eight, seven, eight years, uh, we have experienced spiritual warfare. Uh, we have not experienced spiritual warfare by people being demon-possessed. I've seen that, but not in New City. At New City, we've not experienced uh, uh, you know, spiritual warfare in the, in the form of demon-possessed people or uh, not, none of that. But we have experienced spiritual warfare by conflict between people. You see, in our world, modern world, spiritual warfare manifests in things like conflict among people within the church. And the door to conflict is opened by our own sinfulness. You see? On the other hand, if we were to repent and believe in Jesus genuinely, all of us, we would see very little conflict. And this is true not just of New City, but true of any church. Grace would enable us to be reconciled to one another, not opening the door for the enemy to, to exploit. So that's the first way we're called to engage in spiritual warfare. Be strong in the Lord. And that means to be strong in grace by repentance and faith. The second way we're to engage in spiritual warfare is to put on the armor of God. Again, if you're a follower of Christ, this is a very familiar passage. But what does it really mean to put on the armor of God? Uh, you know, I've seen good Christians, well-meaning Christians pray this. They pray, Jesus, I put on the, the breastplate of righteousness. I, I put on the helmet of salvation. Uh, and hey, all prayer is good. All prayer made from a genuine heart is beautiful in God's sight. So, so pray these prayers. Nothing wrong with those prayers. But 
The full meaning of putting on the armor of God doesn't stop with just praying these prayers. When this passage says, put on the breastplate of righteousness, it means live a righteous life that is fully empowered by the righteousness of Christ. When, it's, when this pas- passage says, fasten the belt of truth, it means live a life of truth by clinging to Jesus who is the ultimate truth and so on and so forth. So the armor of God is not an external thing we put on, but the armor of God is an internal thing that we actually live out, empowered by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That's what it really means to put on the armor of God. Third, this passage called, the third way this passage calls us to engage in spiritual warfare is to pray in the spirit at all times. What does this really mean? Pray in the spirit at all times. We often have this notion that, that praying in the spirit is, is limited to exercising the spiritual gift of praying in tongues. It includes that, but it's not limited to that. And this passage actually defines what praying in the spirit really means quite well. Look at verse 17 onwards. And take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit. Look at this. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit. So this passage equates the sword of the spirit and the word of God. So praying in the spirit in this passage, praying in the Holy Spirit in this passage is actually referring to prayers that are deeply soaked in and enriched by God's word. So to pray in the Holy Spirit is to pray the truths of God's word. The spirit of God and the word of God always work together. And so when we give ourselves to diligent and daily reading and meditation of the word of God, which is given to us in the Bible and only the Bible, it actually translates to praying in the spirit at all times. That's how, these are the three ways in which we are called to engage in spiritual warfare. Allow me to close with this one last thought on what Christ has done for us. We saw that Christ empowers us by giving us the armor of God. We grow in putting on the armor of God as we grow out in living out of the righteousness of Christ that he has freely given us. But there's one more thing that Christ did. And we see that in Colossians chapter 2 verses 13 to 15. I'm reading that for us. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made a life together with him, having forgiven all, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal, legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
it talks about the crucifixion of Christ. The death of Christ Jesus for all of your sins and mine. And his resurrection is what disarmed the enemy. So Christ, our substitute, Christ, our atoning sacrifice, Christ, our Savior, has accomplished two things for us. First, he has disarmed the enemy in every way by his death and resurrection on the cross. And second, he has armed us by giving us the armor of God, by giving us the ability and the grace by the Spirit in God's word to pray at all times. This is the grace of God in our lives. And we, when we dwell in Christ, when we remain in Christ, as Ashish led us in worship this morning, we are safe. We are fruitful. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray, Lord, that your word and your spirit will equip us to take the shield of faith that will quench every fiery dart of the enemy. I know, Lord, the reality of the enemy, world systems, and our own sinful flesh ranged against us. But in Christ Jesus, every one of us is already victorious, is experiencing victory, and in the future will emerge victorious. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.